Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 127 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and here with me is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. And having already gone to the moon this month, we are now taking a trip to the sun for our week three conversation in sci-fi September. Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle and written by one of our favorites, Alex Garland, is one of my own most favorite science fiction films ever. Uh, for me, it's endlessly rewatchable, frighteningly beautiful, and it's contemplative in the way that all of the best sci-fi always is, giving us themes of spirituality and science and humanity to consider while also keeping us thoroughly entertained in this tight, tense 100 minutes. I was really excited that you wanted to finally see this, Patrick. I know that you had not seen it prior to this, and I'm anxious to find out what you thought, but I wondered if you would indulge me and let me run through a few movies that have come out in theaters this past week and uh, give a couple quick recommendations. You shall be indulged, my friend. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, you know what? If this is our last mission, just in case, right? We want to be thorough, so might as well. Not thorough. Thorough, <laughs> which is very different. We're talking existentialism. We might be talking about thorough, but in this case, we're talking about things that are thorough. That is very, very true. Well, as I mentioned, quite a few films came out in theaters this past week. I actually felt like I was dropping a review on social media nearly every day, sometimes two a day. I felt like it was overkill, but uh, not all of them came out in Seattle. They came out at different places of the United States. Um, you know how indies work. Sometimes they just don't go to Arkansas ever. But, you know, sometimes they're just in New York and L.A. and so be it. But we have listeners there, and we want them to know what to go see. So just real quick, here are a few of the films that are out now that I, I would say, not necessarily these are all recommendations, but here's my quick thoughts on them. First up is Science Fair. This is a documentary that essentially is about the International Science Fair and follows quite a few different kids on their journey to compete in this event. It's outstanding. It's amazing. If it wasn't for Won't You Be My Neighbor, this would be my doc of the year, and I, I don't think that anything could beat it because I just feel like it's kind of so important, honestly. Uh, the way that these kids treat science fair, one of them even says at the beginning of the documentary, he says, this international science fair competition is the Olympics for us. You know, they, they are so excited about learning and invention and science in the way that Americans in general or, or most people are excited about sports and the way that they pour themselves into that. So I highly recommend it. It's one you can watch with your kids. Uh, it's very inspiring, and, and I think if Science Fair comes near you, it's a National Geographic documentary, but you got to check this one out. I've got this list that's growing of things that are recommended by Aaron that I can't see yet because I live in a city <laughs> and a state that's landlocked by everything, including uh, culture. And so that's, that's a long way of saying things I need to see, and it's on the list of things I want to see. No science for you. Um, no science for me. Arkansas has to stay in the dark ages. But anyway, um, <laughs> no, really, there are not many people that are going to get to see this in a theater, Patrick. And honestly, as much as I would love to see you throw your money at this to support it, it's not really needed 
to be seen on a big screen. It's going to come out streaming within a couple of months. It'll be up for Oscars, so you'll be able to see it before then. And that's why I'm putting it on your radars, listeners, is just uh, keep your mind, keep it in your mind so that when you see it, you know, hey, I got to watch that one. Um, next up is A Simple Favor. This was the Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively thriller mystery comedy joint from uh, Paul Feig. And uh, I was very excited for this. I know, Patrick, you were interested as well. Both of us are big fans of both of the leading ladies in this one. And I got to say, I was really entertained. It it was funnier than I expected. I'm not a fan of this man's comedy normally. It is, he's very vulgar and uh, things like Bridesmaids. It's just not my style uh, at all, in the least. And this managed to give me quite a few laughs. You know, it does have some of that sexual humor, of course, but it's not overwhelming or um, in a way that really bothered me. It was actually kind of the lack of tight mystery that bothered me the most in this one, Patrick. It's It kind of shows that this is a comedy director <laughs> and that they shine in the parts where they're funny or they have really great chemistry between the two actresses. And overall, with so many twists and turns in this story, he just kind of loses control of keeping it really you know, cohesive, I think. Yeah. As someone who likes to write more comedy than drama, I can definitely see where you'd probably need more of a partnership when you have an overall plot that needs to be driven by more cohesion, throwing in a bunch of punches of humor here and there and still keep that comedy there. That's a great point. If he had done that and paired with someone that could have made that mystery part tighter, this would have been really just a standout, one of the best of the year. As it is, it's worth seeing for sure. And Anna Kendrick's amazing. I mean, it's it's got to be one of her couple of best performances she's given. I just, huh, I'm in love all over again. I told my daughter that uh, I, I should marry Anna Kendrick and uh, that Anna Kendrick could drop her off at FBLA practice. And uh, you should see, you could probably feel the eye roll all the way in Arkansas that I was receiving from my <laughs> daughter. So she didn't, she didn't think it was a possibility. So Anna, if you're listening, you know, let's prove her wrong. Anywho, next, uh, The Predator came out. I was really excited. This was on my list of I'm not going to watch a trailer for this movie because I want to see it in the theaters for the first time. That was a waste of, I guess, opportunity to watch trailers and not do some work. I don't know. It was okay. It was fine. Again, I'm not a fan of of certain kind of comedy and Shane Black, the director, is known for this kind of comedy. So shouldn't have been shocked uh, when that's the direction that this went was that type of humor that is not necessarily my thing um there's a lot of making fun of people with disabilities one included is Tourette's which just always bugs me Uh, I have a I have Tourette's and only 10 to 15 percent of people with Tourette's have the vocal tics where you curse uncontrollably but of course 100 percent of the people in film that have Tourette's have this vocal tic because that's the only way you know they have Tourette's honestly uh, and so they're used as a punchline. It also takes Jacob Trimbley, who's a phenomenal young actor, and gives him, I think, Asperger's and kind of makes fun of him along the way, but then thinks it's all better because he can save the world because he's he's got this this specific um, disability uh, or, you know, mental thing. And, and so it's just, I don't know. I, I didn't love this film. The action kind of is really frantic and not shot well. And the story's just, it's not my favorite. It it was entertaining, but it was a one-time watch for me. Is this meant to be like a reboot of the franchise or an extension? What, what's going on with this one? It's a sequel. Um, It's just another sequel. It, it, it 
continues on as if the Predator and Predator 2 have already occurred. Okay. Uh, and of course, it sets itself up for some crazy, crazy follow-ups, but I, I don't so think So it's like that, the I'm Predator sure. Fallen Kingdom is what it would probably be, right? That's a great comparison. It's actually better than that. I, I kind of am overly making it sound terrible. It was an entertaining watch. I don't necessarily say people shouldn't go see it if you're interested in it because it's worth seeing once. I just don't think it's anything I need to ever see again. Next one I want to mention is Unbroken Path of Redemption or Path to Redemption. This is a sequel to Angelina Jolie's film Unbroken, which is about Louis Zamperini. He was an Olympic runner, a prisoner of war, got stuck in a Japanese camp for two years after being lost at sea for gosh knows how long, six months plus, I believe it was. Uh, it was a miracle that this man even survived what he did and he had a really great story of redemption that Angela, blah, 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 Angelina Jolie kind of left out of her movie. So once he's rescued and comes back from Japan, she just stops the story. But in reality, he goes on, he struggles uh, to reintegrate into his life, which is not surprising, struggles with relationships with his family and with alcoholism, ultimately ends up at a Billy Graham crusade, gives his life to Christ, and has an amazing story of learning how to forgive his captors face to face the men that kept him in a prison camp for two years like that's the compelling part of his story to me and she left it out so this movie tells it it is a pure flicks picture so it's definitely tonally not the same as you would get from most big budget projects but I thought it was really wholesome and, you know, not in a way that was a turnoff. I, I enjoyed it and I was glad to see this part of his life put to screen. Well, that's good. I was, I'm broken to blind spot for me. I haven't seen it yet. And to know that there's a sequel to it that exists outside the realm of a big budget studio creates an interesting potential there. And so I, I'd be curious once I get a chance to see both to see, I'd like to watch them back to back to see from a filmmaking standpoint, how they kind of line up with each other. They would work well. And that's, okay. that's a, a praise that I can definitely give it is I think that you could watch these back to back and get, because the, the sequel here picks up right where she leaves off. So it's, it's just flows right into it naturally. It even uses a few of the shots from her film in okay. flashbacks. So it kind of ties them together in that way uh universal was involved in both of them so uh, it's it's really worth it's worth your time um you know pure flicks has had a couple hits lately the case for christ w was another one that Very turned out really well a lot yeah you know so they're not they're not all crap anymore <laughs> some of them are worth seeing uh the last one this is one i, I have no idea where this is playing i, I think i've posted on my social media accounts a, a list of when it's coming to certain theaters in certain areas in the united states the film is called Five Fingers for Marseille, and this is a South African modern Western, and it is unlike anything I've ever seen. I randomly grabbed this uh, from a screener request someone had sent. The company or the production uh, studio is called Uncorked, and usually they do really like B-level stuff. I mean, the, other, the next one they sent me was called Death Kiss, and in the big plug was it features a charles bronson look-alike and i was like yeah a pass so that's what you usually get from uncourt but instead they gave us this this film and man it blew me away it is i would say definitely my favorite foreign film so far this year uh that i've seen 
and it's got to be in the running come Oscar time. I mean, it is an exquisite piece of filmmaking. It's from another first-time director, which is, seems to be the kind of thing that's happening this year is so many first-time directors are just hitting home runs left and right. It's amazing. But it, it tells the story of these five or six group of friends, young young uh, African-Americans in South America, who live in a town that has been taken over by this white you know, railroad that essentially has come in and kind of pushed them, pushed their town down. Um, and, it, and it takes a natural Western turn from there. One of the children, they, they kind of fight back. They're like this young resistance uh, trying to protect their town folk and their, their brothers and sisters and families. And they end up, one of them makes a very bad decision, uh, a tragic accident. Ends up, he has to leave town. You know, he goes off, comes back 20-something years later to right his wrongs and face off against these, uh, you know, all of the the terrible, um, you know, town mayor and and the the aristocracy that's kind of taken over. It's really really good. I mean, it follows that formula that we know very well, but it twists it in a way you've never seen before. So, Five Fingers from Marseille, highly 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 recommend. I will try and plug it on the podcast or let people know when it comes streaming, uh, so I can say go find it. But just note the name for now. All right, well that's it, man. I think that was quick enough. And uh, with that being said, please follow us on social media. The links are in our show notes always, and they're also on the website. And if you do that, you can get uh, paragraph long reviews when these films come out uh, as I'm putting them out there. So you'll get the knowledge right away. Well, Patrick, announcements real quick. By request, episode five is out. That one was on The Mist. I got to talk about that film. I was really excited. It was it was a fun time. I felt like I had a lot to say, and I was able to do it in 30 minutes, and I was surprised. Uh, I got to talk about the ending and talk about why it is amazing, and those that don't understand it hopefully will maybe have a better understanding of it when they hear the conversation I had. Um, sometime soon after this episode in the Buy Request podcast feed, you'll also see an episode on Frozen. That was the next voted film that I had to cover. Uh, so I've done my watch of that and I'm ready to talk my way through <laughs> that one. That should be interesting. I'm, I'm, I, 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 you can smile because you don't have to do it. Uh, this, this is what, <laughs> part of that. You've dug your own grave, I guess you could say. Yes. Part <laughs> of ways. what comes with letting the listeners vote is I have to do what they say. And so I know there's some good things to talk about with Frozen. And there's some, uh, some interesting things that came up when I revisited this for the first time in probably five years. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. And then we wanted to say thank you. We have a new Patreon supporter, FML, not uh, that FML that you might be thinking, but FML is in Fantasy Movie League, the podcast Fantasy Movie League, My Life. Uh, check them out, especially if you're a Fantasy Movie League player. They give you all of the info that you need to be successful in that game. But thank you guys for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Spoiler alert. We're rolling into sunshine at this point, and we're going to talk about it. It's got... One of those endings that you need to not know about before you see the film. That's what I'm going to say for now. So if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Sunshine, stop what you're doing. Come back to the podcast after you see it. Patrick. Yes, sir. Speaking of seeing it, this is your first time. Yeah. It's a movie I watch a lot. Sunshine Rookie. That's what I am. Yeah. Well, start us off. What's your one word takeaway, buddy? Well, there was a lot to take in in these hundred minutes. There is um, visually 
and from a character standpoint, overall story, there was just a lot to to pull from. And the one word that stood out to me was sacrifice. When you're dealing with space travel, when you're dealing with sci-fi and missions and things that require a crew to go out and do something, we've seen this a lot with things like Armageddon and other other kind of spacey movies where there's a a threat to the earth and there's a crew of people that have to go out and accomplish something, you know that there will be lives that are lost. I mean, it's inevitable. Anytime you deal with something as dangerous as going to the moon or, or the sun or any blazing star that you're trying to restart with a nuclear weapon, there's probably a good chance that not everybody's going to survive the mission. So having a pretty good idea of that going into this, um, I made it a point to hone in on the characters that Boyle and company were highlighting. Um, Sci-fi has always been this great road that you can explore our humanity, who it is that we are. It's asking those Socratic questions. Who who are we? Why are we here? Does God exist in all that? It's very much like a, a very existential kind of thinking when it comes to sci-fi because you can explore that about about yourself. I think Gene Roddenberry does a great job in his in his Star Trek television series exploring that in more of a long-form storytelling, you know, putting a human race up against other races and do they violate the prime directive when they enter a new planetary system and asking these different questions that that we have as human beings but putting it in the context of science fiction where we don't have to feel threatened by asking those questions. We don't feel like we're necessarily being offended. And so I I connected with these characters. Um they what they did, each one of them felt genuinely sacrificial and necessary, and each played a part in fulfilling that mission at hand. I say at hand because it did change here and there. We did see our primary mission, and then we saw something kind of diverge to something else that we'll get into, but I think overall the stakes here were high, and that's something that I know you and I always, always, always want from our action, drama, movies that show us there's a chance that people will perish and they actually gives us that because it feels like there's weight to it. Instead of saying, and in the end, they all lived, literally, in the end, they all died. <laughs> but their deaths didn't feel expendable. They felt very much like you could, you wanted to grieve each one of them as we got to see that progression of them sacrificing in their own way because we got to know them in this short amount of time. And I think that's a credit to the writing, to the directing, to every person on this creative staff that gave us uh, a movie like Sunshine. Wow, man, that's that's good stuff. I'm really happy to hear that that was how you felt about it. Well, my one-word takeaway, what, this viewing was hot. <laughs> and I... Uh, on the nose. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with something that's very, very blunt, and that's hot. That is... But because multiple ways that I feel this was hot. You know, whether it was the enormous pressure of the mission at hand, there was this high intensity that we got between interactions uh, from crew members. They're, they're living isolated in space and having to make these unbelievably tough choices. And then it's also stunning. And I, and I do mean 
staggeringly beautiful. It's one of the most amazing visual films I've seen, but specifically the visuals of the sun and the sun's rays and the sun's flares. Sunshine's always made me feel the heat. Um, Boyle manages to give us kind of this first person perspective of gazing into the sun that we couldn't really do because we would burn our retinas. And it's overwhelming to me in its beauty but it's also terrifying and there are these scenes of Kaneda's spacesuit being engulfed in the solar flares uh, and then Kappa when he enters the sun and detonates the bomb at the end and um, everything kind of slows down for a moment it just bathes him in this pure heat and I, I mean I actually feel my own skin sweating and my emotional temperature rising just watching this in a way that very, very few films have ever caused me to experience. So hot is mine. It's a great, it's a great word. And as I was watching this, it makes me regret not having a bigger screen to watch these on. I watch this movie in particular on because of the fact that there are several scenes in particular, um, you know, Searle's first when he's, we're introduced, we're getting introduced to him and he asks to have the sun turned up to 3, 3.1% to capture as much of it as he can, which says a lot. I mean, I love the fact that at the very beginning, we're getting this enormity of what the sun actually is. I mean, I was driving home from work, uh, or actually I was driving to my son's soccer practice. I was like, oh, look, the sun's going down. And I was thinking, that thing is way far away. And I couldn't, and I was thinking about that scene. And I was like, imagine me being as close as he was and still being that far away only experiencing 3.1% of the enormity of what that is. And I was like, man, that's a testament to how Boyle, no pun intended, I guess, with his name, is trying to make us feel temperature-wise, but also mm -hmm. just how small we actually are as as humans. Yeah, it's crazy. We can't even look at the sun now. And, yeah. and it's this dot up in the sky half the time. And, yeah. and there they are, you know, closing in on it however many millions of miles away, but it's actually like, that's really close at this point. <laughs> but then, I love that scene too. I, that scene is, I think it's such a great way to set this film up um, by giving us that scene. And, and it tells us just what that experience could be like. Um, and, and how it's fascinating from a science point of view, right? Like they're not just going to do this military mission. That's one thing I love about this movie. It's not, a bunch of military people who are going to put a bomb on something and they're doing science on the side. These are science people that have a physicist who is running the nuclear bomb. There's no military involvement here. Right. Um, and that's different than we see a lot of times with like, even with like Armageddon, right? There's, there's a military component to the way that the NASA astronauts are asked to act. And this is handled differently. And I really enjoy that because we get to see what scientists would do and how they would react. And I kind of want to start it off by talking about this concept, which personally I just find is super fascinating. I knew you were going to like it. Um, this idea that the sun is dying and the earth is freezing over and we're going to send all of our nuclear material to the sun to throw it in there and hope that the explosion that it creates is enough to trigger reigniting the sun enough to save our planet from, you know, essentially being cold and freezing everybody to death. Um, 
did you buy this as an idea? Like, is it believable sci-fi? Did you, when you heard it, did you think, oh my gosh, that's, wow, that could happen? Well, I didn't think of it as in that, in that term. Like when I, when the premise was given to me, when I, when I saw that, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. What I did take away was the fact that I felt like we kind of dropped right into the middle of a big, bigger story. So usually, and Armageddon to me is a, is a great example or Deep Impact. When you have a story like this where you have a crew of people that need to save the world by going somewhere from an intergalactic standpoint or just outside the, the realm of Earth, this is usually the third act. Like where this movie picks up at the very beginning is the third act of any of these other sci-fi movies. And so we're just sort of thrown into this, which I think is very, very cool because as an audience, we're expected to be trusted with this premise. And to me, it didn't take long for me to get the premise. I mean, it's science fiction, you know, so to, to make the argument that is this believable sci-fi is kind of an oxymoron. I mean, I'm sort of told to suspend my disbelief because of the actual fact that it's science fiction. But to answer your question, I think what you're asking is, hey, is this connectable with something that could happen in the future? A lot like Moon, when it came to cloning and the ability to harvest people to do work outside of the boundaries of Earth. Yes, absolutely. And I think, and we've talked about this before, I love concepts like that where it could exist. It might be a stretch, but it's that stretch that we can live in from an entertainment perspective mm -hmm. and allow us to kind of sit on the foundation that, hey, this might actually be a possibility. This movie also reminded me of a Twilight Zone episode where I don't know the ex exact name of it, but I think it's called The Sun is Dying or something like that. Or And, and the whole episode takes place in a room with a woman who is trying to keep herself warm because every day the sun gets further and further. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It gets closer and closer to her. So it's the opposite of that, where she's constantly getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And so the sun is just getting closer and closer and closer. And what you find out is that it's actually all a dream. And so when she wakes up, the reality is that the opposite is actually happening. The sun's getting further and further and further away. And so Sunshine sort of does a combination of these two where you've got this heat in this crew heading towards the sun trying to prevent the ice age happening on the earth and it came to mind it wasn't a complete one-for-one -one comparison but i remember That's having those kinds of thoughts and it's a great episode i just spoiled it <laughs> i apologize but it's okay it's, it's one of many i don't think a lot of people are watching twilight zone but yeah i i think the concept is fantastic it's about the execution and how you get there anyway not exactly. necessarily what happens. Exactly. Um, yeah, this it, it actually made me think of the other part of Moon, which is the fact that we are mining lunar rocks in order to have energy on the Earth because we have run out of energy resources. So it reminded me of that um, quite pretty much pretty blatantly, you know. Like, and of course, we just watched Moon and talked about it recently, so that was on my mind. Um, I also love conceptually that we. I mean, that's a great point about being thrown into the third act. I really didn't think about it in those terms, but you're absolutely right. Because normally in any other film, we see the buildup. We see the problem announced. We see an attempt fail. And we see the fallout start to happen. And then we realize, like, here's now we've got to go do the last-ditch mission. And instead, really, we're on the last... We're not even on the last-ditch mission. We're on, like, the last, last-ditch mission. And that's what I found extra compelling. Not just because of the story points that it 
allows us to explore later in the plot because it's needed in order to to kind of take a certain directions. But the idea that, you know what, that makes sense. We sent one up and however many years ago and it didn't work for whatever reason. I mean, there are so it, it reminded me that there are so many things that could go wrong. Simple, tiny little things that could derail this entire process. It was believable to me that we now have a second mission that's trying to complete what the first one didn't. And I love that idea that, hey, this is it. This is all of the nuclear material we've got left on Earth. This is our last shot. We don't have any more opportunities to send, you know, mission number three. Uh, and that drove the enormity for me of the mission. And it really, the, the, like you said, those consequences and those high stakes make this incredibly compelling because there's just no alternatives. Yeah, it's a very finite story in that we know that it's going to end somewhere and somehow. And the fact that we are being told that this is the last thing that's going to happen, it's all or nothing. It's put your risks here or don't put them in at all because there is no going back. There is no third chance. And I think that's what helps increase those stakes. I got to ask you, this is one of the things that I thought about was how one of the potential problems that could occur is, you know, if the ship doesn't do what the ship's supposed to do automatically, like if the passenger's ship doesn't fix itself correctly, um, all of these things go wrong because the humans can only do so much. And I, and maybe it's because I've watched so much sci-fi where evil ship AI takes over or we have (laughs) AI like interacting with the process at some point, like 2001. And, you know, we have, we have these AIs that are very, very integral to the the operation of the technology did you ever get that feeling when the ship was talking like what if the ship can't because there's there's multiple times where the ship has to make calculations happen and adjust things yeah i don't know that Boyle gives us enough hints that the there's danger with the ai i don't think there's a lot of emphasis on that and so i didn't pick up on that i think unlike moon or 2001 there's not a direct emphasis on the importance of the ship's computer like it, it was a part of the crew. It was really more like the computer on Star Trek. It was, it was really an information giver instead of something that served as a um, emotional connector or in the case of something like 2001, something that felt more ominous. Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean it more in a sense the just of this idea of you're having to rely on this piece of technology. Ah, um, you're six no. humans and the ship does so much. If the ship does something wrong, you only have a limited amount of ability to fix whatever the ship did wrong. Yeah. See, I don't, again, I don't think that I was given enough about the ship's importance to feel that way. I felt like it was just, I think it was just part of the assumption that, Hey, the ship's going to be fine. It was never hinted at that. Hey, something could go wrong. So no, I didn't. So it's just my mind, like automatically creating problems that aren't there. I got it. Way to go. Fair enough. Trust the ship, Aaron, trust it. Well, you did call it one of the crew, so let's I talk did. about the crew a little bit. Okay. Um, I, I love this cast. I think it's phenomenal. It's diverse. They all give really incredibly strong performances, um, especially emotionally speaking, just mm-hmm. the way they have to go through different situations in a short period of time. Um, and like you mentioned, having to kind of get to know them so quickly uh, I think that they do a good job of that. Did you have any problems with that or did no. you take to him pretty quickly? I, I, t- I took to him pretty quickly. And I think having stunning cinematography to help with that, particularly with Searle was, is it Searle? I think is that, uh, yeah. is 
is a great way to kind of introduce us to these folks. I was uh, reading an interview with, with Boyle after watching this, and there was an intent to be able to diversify the cast, not because of diversity's sake, but because of the fact that it made sense. You have a, a global crisis happening. Right. And you would expect the U.S. to be a partner in, not necessarily a leader of, a mission like this, which is why you get particularly Japanese folks on board. And I think it made itself a lot more, it made the the crew a lot more convincing because you had that kind of diversity. The fact that you had someone as a psychiatrist, you had a botanist, you had a biologist, you had people that it made sense to be on board the ship for not just the mission's sake, but also for the population of people that existed there. And I love the diversity of that. From a character developing standpoint, I think they all had their own little pockets of character development that helped me latch onto them. And and that's difficult to do. It's That's a credit to good writing when you have particular scenes. Um, Chris Evans' character, Mace, I think he had a couple of great scenes early on when, when he was fighting with Kappa, uh, getting him thrown into the Earth Room, which I thought was pretty fantastic. Said a lot about his character and... Um, so things like that really helped in in terms of my connection with them. Yeah, me too. And you know, even more side characters that don't aren't the most integral ones to the plot, like Kappa and Mace. Uh, people like you know Benedict Wong as Trey. Mm-hmm. You really understand. He has this phenomenal scene when you know during Kaneda going outside of the ship to try and fix the what are they called? The not sensors. The uh, solar panels um, where he's completely torn up. Like the watching him take on the guilt and the responsibility from making a calculation wrong that could cost the entire humanity, the entire race of humans, their lives essentially. uh, If this doesn't go right. And at the very worst is probably going to cost one of his crew members life. Like it is awful to see. And he sells it so strongly, which then we don't really see his character for like another, you know, a good almost the entirety of the film until later when he ends up committing suicide. But it sells that moment 100 percent. We don't have to see anything else because we totally understand it. And so, yeah, there's performances like that all throughout this. And I think it I think it makes them more interesting, honestly, that we didn't get a ton of backstory, that it's minimal and that what we get is their interactions with each other because I really love the conversations that stem from them being isolated, whether it's Kappa and Mace fighting, because at some point you're going to have two dudes with testosterone that aren't going to get along and they're going to fight if they're in space together, isolated this long together and with all of this pressure on them. And, And I liked how they told us pieces of knowledge about characters through the way that they teased each other. Like when they're, I think it's talking to Harvey at the very beginning, um, May says something to him. He's like, while you're listening to your space music, right? (laughs) And like, that's how we learn that he's the communications guy. And we're smart enough as an audience to go, okay, he was listening to something. We heard him. He's saying he picked up a signal. Oh, okay. So he's the comms guy. You know, I just, it's really good writing, I thought. And um, Mm -hmm. and not everybody could have done that. You know, you throw these characters and put us in the story at this point, and and it could have been a big problem where we just didn't have that connection to them to care enough. Yeah. Well, 
big questions uh, occur in this plot. So I want to go over a couple of these. The first problem that we come up with is we discovered the Icarus one is still out there. It has not exploded. It's really close to the sun. It's just a little bit off course. And so now we have to make this decision, the crew does, of do we go to the Icarus one to get their payload to see if the crew is alive to find out what happened? Or do we just continue on course as the mission is planned because nothing else matters except completing the mission and all of humanity is depending on us. That's heavy. And I would not <laughs> want to be in the position to have to make this call. I want to know how you thought, what you thought about this. A, what do you think you would have chosen or voted for if you were voting? And how do you think the film handled it? Well, first of all, I'd like to be voted off the island because I don't want to make that decision. Just put my put my put my torch out because I don't want to make that. I don't want to do that. Um, and and that that really speaks to how I felt in that moment of thinking, wow, the explorer in me would love to be able to see what's going on here. I, we we covered two thousand one back in January, and I know that you and I both watched the sequel to that, which isn't nearly as good. And but the concept of it is pretty interesting. The the fact that you have a a rescue mission to go find Jupiter that was left in orbit, um, or excuse me, the discovery that was left in orbit around Jupiter. And I, I picked up on that and, and Boyle's influence about, hey, there's a crew here from six or seven years ago that may still be alive. And the Icarus has potentially something there. Like we could fulfill the mission with double the payload. And so the explorer in me is like, Man, this is a cool thing. They should go after it. They should go after the Icar go after the Icarus because they're gonna find a mysterious thing. What's gonna happen? And, and to me, as a as an audience, I wanted that. Now, as a rational person, I'm going. I'm very close to the sun already. Icarus one is even closer. This is dangerous. I have a payload. I'm not going to risk the loss of my payload and my life. The my life and the lives of my crew for the sake of doubling up on and doubling down on the potential to reignite the sun with two payloads. So for me, if I was in charge, I would say Icarus one, their mission was seven years ago. It failed. We need to proceed with our mission. I would too, I think, and I would wrestle with it and I would second guess myself for the rest of my life. As you're supposed to, probably. Uh, um, but I think I would err on the side, essentially, of statistics. <laughs> and we're talking X billion people versus potentially seven people. And right. as inhumane as that makes me sound, and I understand, I think for me, and this is going to come into play in big problem number two when it comes up that I, we talk about it, but... For me, it kind of boils down to this idea of if you don't at least consider that as an option because those singular lives could actually still matter, then what are you saving? Like what kind of humanity are you actually trying to save? Like if, yeah. if we're not going to consider that, right, if we're so flippantly going to dismiss other lives, um, maybe we shouldn't be saving anything <laughs> at that well, point. Well, and I I will say this. I think that the motive behind potentially going to find Icarus one 
is less about the crew and more about the payload. Because there's definitely that comment that two last hopes are better than one. When we think about that, yeah, I mean, having two payloads, we, I, I don't know the complexity of what it means to actually launch the payload into the sun. I think they've, they showed us a demonstration through the computer. But the thing is, you're, com you're making it more complex because then you're having to control two. You've got a physicist whose sole job is to drop this thing in the right spot at the right time. And if you've got a second ship trying to do that same thing, one, you're going to have to bank that the crew is all still alive. And if the physicist on board is still alive. And two, you're, you're having to make sure that that payload gets dropped in the exact same way as your payload. So I think that there's too much risk. And even if you have more ammunition, if you don't know how to fire it, you're, you're putting everything at risk, including what your mission is. Yeah. And what I love about this scene is that they specifically go through it as a risk assessment. And I'm a big fan of this. I mean, they even say it's a risk assessment. Those words, does the risk of a detour outweigh the benefits of an extra payload? That's how I make decisions in my everyday life. And I feel like it's a, a wonderful way to do this. You know, like you've got to take the emotion out of this. And they largely do in that situation, um, at, at least at first. And then, of course, they're like, oh, two payloads are better than one, which mm, kind of disagree. What they were uh, thinking about was the audience will love the second, the, the detour. Let's do that. Right. But we've got to get to the Icarus for, for issues. You know, also, did you have any kind of mental connection at the very beginning? Because when we first meet the ship and it's called the Icarus, my, my mind immediately was like, that's not a good idea. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, do you know what happened to Icarus in great mythology? Like the whole point of I Icarus's story is that he flew too close to the sun and burned up. Yeah. Like, I, that, I, like, like why would you name your ship that? And then it's Icarus too. So, you know, it's like the second one. So yeah. this like Titanic and ominous. Titanic too. Yeah. Yeah. And sequel Titanic too. <laughs> yeah. Why would you ever name your, exactly. It's like naming your ship Titanic, uh, too. That's just, it's crazy. Um, well, we get to the Icarus and there's. An awesome scene that kind of plays out. I love the way that this is shot. I love the tension that is built here that Garland uses in that airlock when they're they've they've found the crew burned in the room. Um, there's a great like gotcha kind of line where they're like, oh, "What's all this dust?" And it's like, "It's not dust. It's human skin." I, I, remember, <laughs> ugh, I was like revolting, right? Um, but then we get in the airlock and we realize, "Oh crap!" You know, the ship's been blown apart and we only have one suit. What are we going to do? And so there's this great moment between Harvey and Mace and Kappa and Searle. And they're trying to decide what's going to happen. And Harvey immediately starts campaigning for his life, right? I'm number two in command. I've got to go back. Um, and Mace is like, no, Kappa's the physicist. Like, he's the one who's most important of all of us. And so then they, they run through this process and they're going to fire everybody back. And then we learn Searle comes out and he says, oh, you know, somebody's got to stay back and do this manually. And Harvey is just, Harvey is all of us in this moment. He is worried about his own life. He is fearful that he is going to die. And he's like, it's me, it's me. I know what you're going to do. And I just, one of my favorite lines of the whole film is kind of the music's going and Searle comes to Searle and he's like, no, Harvey, it's me. And like, that's it, right? Because he knows that he's the most expendable because he's the psychiatrist. Like if you're going to lose somebody, he's the one that you gotta, you gotta let go. Um, and his immediate recognition of doing that made me think of something because it made me think about how Harvey is acting scared and he's in self-preservation mode, whereas Searle is willingly accepting 
this sacrifice. And so I think in most films, we are led to intentionally not feel empathy for the character that is trying to look out for himself versus the character that's being sacrificial and giving all of all of his life away, essentially. And Harvey's death is just instant, man. It's like it, he just like, oh, he floated, floated out in space. He froze. And it's, it's, it's cold and heartless, just like his death. And yet. I wonder if that was intentional because because the character is concerned with himself, that that's how we envision his passing away almost like it's not sad like it's not a big loss because this guy wanted to save himself and yet for all the other characters in this film Searle, Kaneda, um, you know Kappa like the ones that are giving their own lives intentionally or for others it's very dramatic and it's like a painful fashion that we see this happen and so I just wondered what you thought about that is it right is it fair it made me think Harvey's death kind of should be just as tragic as everybody else's. And should we really look down on people that aren't immediately jumping out of their skin to sacrifice their life? Because isn't that how we would all probably react? Isn't it, isn't it something to be looked at as a higher plane for someone than to look down on someone that can't get to that level? I, I don't know. What did you think? Well, Working through that, I was thinking a lot about from a, from a faith standpoint, and in in our world, when we talk about praying for each other or praying for other people, uh, I get I get this feeling sometimes when I hear a lot of people asking to be prayed for, and there's a lot of tragedy going on. I mean, let's take the let's take the hurricane for instance, the recent hurricane, and there's a lot of uh, I was recently buying groceries, and there's this there's a when you check out, there's like, Hey, do you want to contribute to hurricane relief? And I'm like, okay, here's a buck. I have not been thinking consciously about the 25 people that have died during the hurricane. And there's a part of me that goes, well, should I be? Does that mean I have no sympathy for people who have died? And I don't believe that's the case. I believe that there's a personal connection that comes with the relationships that we have and how we feel empathy for them. If you and I have a conversation offline and you're telling me about something pretty incredible happening to your daughter, I'm going to listen to that and embrace that more so than if I hear that same story about a guy living in Chicago talking about his daughter, same situation, same exact thing happening, but because it's you I have empathy. And I think that when it comes to film, one of the wonderful things about being manipulated as an audience is that we are kind of invited into a world of empathy with certain characters. And Harvey was not a character that we connected with. I mean, I think in that was by design. I think the fact is his character was set up to be not an antagonist, but someone who against Searle would look even worse. In other words, I think his character and the negativity that we feel and the apathy that we feel about his death was it made Searle's death that much more amplified because of how much we cared about his sacrifice. So I think he was a, I think in this case his character was a tool in order to amplify Searle's character. Absolutely. I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I think 
it was just it was interesting to me that I kind of latched on to this and I mm-hmm. really looked at him and I said, you know, man, this is how we would react. You know, 99% of us aren't going to just willingly jump out of our, our chair to be like, nope, it's me. I'll stay. I'll die. You know what I mean? This human reaction is Harvey. That's that's the, the gut reaction is self-preservation and save yourself. Yeah. And he's not really like an a-hole about it either. He's not terrible. You know, he can't he kind of freaks out of air at the very, very first. Like, Cap, I get out of the suit, get out of the suit. You know, like he's he's wanting to save himself. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, I just thought it was was interesting. Um, so I love the concept of the fire happening, the the second big problem that now we occur what occurs. And it's this concept of I thought it was brilliant. Again, writing and, and design work. What's going to take this ship down is a fire on it. When they're trying to get to a big, major ball of fire and start a bigger fire, and that's the whole goal, you know. <laughs> but yet, a fire of oxygen burning out is essentially what's going to ruin everything. I just think that's <laughs> visually and like conceptually, storytelling wise, it's amazing. Beavis and, and Butthead would just have a field day with this movie. Uh, fire, 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 fire. Um, yeah, and that is, but that's Alex Garland for you. Um, and so we have this next big question, right? There's not enough oxygen. So Patrick, would you kill a crew member in order to complete the mission? Don't hold your breath, Aaron. I don't think I would. Wait, literally don't hold your breath because I would give you. Oh, so that I die on my own and yeah, you don't, don't have to feel responsible? Yeah, <laughs> don't hold your breath. Yeah, there. Yeah. Um, it's, wow. Um, I'm going to go, gosh, can I plead the fifth on this? (laughs) It, it, it's, it's a great question and it's a great thing to, to wrestle with as an audience because we then are now putting value on people. We're putting value not on the greater good of humanity at earth with our first question now we're putting the value on okay is my life more important than this person's and now we're assigning value based on well this person has acted this way and this is the character these are the character traits are they expendable it's less about jobs it's less about importance of those jobs and more about actual personalities in this movie and man it's it's really difficult i don't know that i could I think that if I were objective, I would say in the same way that that Searle sacrificed himself, I would say who's needed to fulfill the mission? Save those guys. It's 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 like the when you have a fallout shelter for the for the president and you're gonna take him and you're gonna take the vice president, but you're not gonna take the communications director because they're not gonna have a lot of speech writers when you know the the nuclear fallout occurs. Um, that's the right thing to do. But if I'm the psychiatrist on board, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I could make my argument that I would want to stick around. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I love the way that the film handles it because they have to wrestle with this and they are forced to take in both perspectives. There's a great conversation that happens, right? Where Kappa says, what are you asking me? That we weigh the life of one against the future of mankind? Kill him. Like, he, he, he understands. And he is all about the all versus the one. And Cassie responds and says, I know the argument. I know the logic. You're saying you need my vote. I'm saying you can't have it. 
she can't make that decision. So we see both extremes, right? The one who will not go that way, will not go that far. And we see the one that quickly deduces we've got to save humanity and however many of us have to die, have to die. And then Mace is kind of in between. You can tell, like he's conflicted. Mm -hmm. And I love that we have Maces in the world, Patrick. That's what I I took out of this was like, I'm probably honestly a Cassie just like you saying, I'm not going to give you my vote. You're going to end up doing whatever you want. And she even, she, she, she sighs and she huffs because she knew, she knew that was going to happen anyway. And then she just looks at him and she just says, you know, make it painless, right? Don't, don't make it hurt. Make it peaceful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Mace is the one that is that leader that kind of has to do the hard thing for them. And so, uh, man, I just I love this scene and the emotional trauma that it puts me through <laughs> watching yeah. it and and thinking about what you would do in this situation. I think Boyle uh, went on record as saying this is probably his favorite scene because of that. The fact that there is so much tension and it really amplifies one of the central themes of the movie, which is how are how are we valuing life on a global scale on a small group scale and then on an individual scale because that's something that's threaded throughout this movie is what does it mean to value life in these different instances and what are you willing to sacrifice for the greater good for the smaller good and then eventually for yourself yeah absolutely man well what's the big elephant or pinbacker in the room that is the <laughs> the third act of sunshine which is it's kind of the dividing point right like i've never met anybody that didn't like the first two acts of sunshine i haven't like everybody i've ever talked to has enjoyed this film and then the paths diverge and there are people like me who love it and there are people who don't uh one of our listeners gabe who i often disagree with is in this camp he said this was a really great film, completely derailed by an off-the-wall slasher flick ending that makes no sense, right? That's essentially what he and many people feel, and especially feel the first time they watch this, before they're able to kind of take it in knowing it's coming. So it's a jarring thing. So tell me what you thought about it first, because this was your first viewing, and it was like my you know dozenth or so. Well, it definitely has a tonal shift, and I think because... First of all, I'm just going to say I love the soundtrack. I think John Murphy's fantastic in it. Uh, or as a composer. Adagio in yeah. D minor, my friend. It is yeah. like one of my favorite tracks ever. It's but amazing. The, but the whole the whole thing is just very ominous. It's very mellow. It, it, has a, it has a haunting kind of flavor to it. And so everything feels kind of slow in, in the movie. The movie isn't slow itself. It just feels like it has a slow pace, which is which is kind of nice because in space 2001 again is a great representation of that. It's a very like slow burn. The guys are moving slowly in space because that's what you do in zero gravity. You just move very slowly. I, I look at this third act and I go, it definitely has a shift, but that shift doesn't bother me if I understand what the movie is trying to be. And there was a great poll question that went out. I don't know if it was, if it started out in our, Facebook group or popcorn theology, but someone asked, what's more important, intent or execution? And I think that I I err on the side of execution because if you have to explain your movie beyond kind of a primer type <laughs> premise, then you're probably not doing it right. And 
it's the same way in general design. If you have to explain why something works, it doesn't work because it needs to stand on its own. It needs to represent itself on its own. But I look at a movie like this and I see if we take it as just hard sci-fi, then yes, it breaks down because you have this one section of it that feels very much like a slasher movie. It feels like, oh my gosh, what's happening? As opposed to exploration, it turns into, let's get away from the killer. It feels fantastical. Like a fantastical element has been introduced into a realistic story. Yes. But at the same time, that's not really what it is. It's a psychological thriller. And the sci-fi setting is really the backdrop for that. So this whole mission to get to the sun and ignite this bomb and all this stuff is really more like a MacGuffin. And so when you get a guy like Pinbacker, who is introduced, you get a little bit of backstory, probably about as much as you get from these other characters. And then you get this whole sequence of him attacking folks, but understanding where he where he comes from and explaining to him, he becomes almost like a metaphor. I love the, there's a great little fan theory out there that says Pinbacker actually doesn't exist. It's actually it's actually a figment of the imagination of of um, of Kappa, and I can buy that halfway. It would still there's still a couple of parts of the movie that would can't be explained through that. But I love that approach because I think that idea or the idea that he's more metaphorical than actual makes more sense, and it emphasizes the the craziness, the isolation that effect that it has on a crew like this, especially with that kind of pressure. So it didn't bother me that it shifted that much. I think because I was able to see sunshine less like a sci-fi, we've got to get to the sun and more like a metaphor and a, and a thriller that was trying to kind of explore these existential ideologies, because that's really what it was pushing that third act. That's very, very interesting. And I think at some point in my life, I've actually had those thoughts as well because i've i've wrestled with this ending um, quite a few times and tried to figure out what i thought of it did i like it did i not like it what was going on i've actually subscribed to this idea as well at one point where i i thought you know okay the way it's being depicted especially really kind of gives you this idea that maybe it's psychological in nature and it's kind of like a, an imagination because it's never in focus and it's just disjointed but then my mind always comes back to the realism which as i mentioned a minute ago and that's Everything in this film up until this point has been completely realistic. The mm-hmm. science is there, um, or at least they're attempting. I don't know if the science is correct. I'm not a science like major or whatever. It but feels I'm saying grounded they're, though. It they're feels intentionally grounded. grounding it right. Um, so if he's not real, then someone had to have blown the airlock. Someone had to have these things had to have occurred in order for him to quote unquote get on. There's just these things that I feel don't perfectly line up with that. That's not to say it's not fine to read it this way. It's an interesting concept. Um, But where I have ultimately landed on this, I think, is where Garland's intent and Boyle's intent lies. Mm -hmm. And man, I love that you brought that thread up. It was a really good one as well. So, you know, that's an an example, listeners, if you're not in our Feel and Film Facebook group of the kind of discussions that happen every week. So another plug to go join that group and be a part of those. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think what it comes into, comes down to here is that Pinbacker is a man who has survived 
for however many years, seven years. Um, he's done so by killing off his crew in order to ensure that he has enough oxygen and is able to continue living and not having to share that. And he has become a fundamentalist. And Kappa sort of represents this atheistic view on life um, that we have to save humanity, uh, even though what seems like predetermination is going to wipe us out. We need to fight against that because that's all we have um, is this life, right? We have to stop it from happening. There is nothing else. This makes sense to me in a couple of reasons. Now, one is that Garland is a very staunch atheist, according to interviews, um, and specifically Boyle has said that. So it doesn't surprise me that he would write that kind of argument in. And Pinbacker comes across, and some of the things he says really kind of portray him as like this fundamentalist extremist. Now, I'm not saying he's someone I would look at as a religious um, hero <laughs> or um, someone to look up to, but he takes it to a whole nother level where he essentially seems to be saying, I need to stop this from happening because God has determined that the earth needs to freeze and we need to not mess with this predetermined thing that is supposed to happen. And we are trying to circumvent that. And by stopping it, he becomes the lone person standing that gets to essentially be there with God, just one-on-one. -on -one. And, and so I really do, like, I've listened to, or no, I haven't listened to, but I've talked through the commentaries, I've read some interviews on this, and I think that that's where um, Garland and Boyle are trying to go with this. There is some interesting info that uh, Jake, Jacob, our contributor, had told me came out of the commentary where he learned that Apocalypse Now is Danny Boyle's favorite film. And Colonel Kurtz is in that film. And if you think about it, it's really easy to compare those two characters of Pinbacker and Kurtz and the way that he becomes warped um, in this way. And I think that the visual aspect of how the film portrays Pinbacker is intentionally blurry and, and dis disjointed and scattered and just kind of freakish because of the psychological break that has occurred in his character. So that's how I read it, Yeah, <laughs> ultimately. And I don't know if this is ironic, but I think there's a specific intent with the way that Danny Boyle handles, particularly the deaths of the different characters. You have a guy like Pinbacker, who originally was a man of science, has now become a man of faith, in the weirdest of senses, I guess. You know, in I mean, his I, way, yeah, in his, in his way. Uh, you have the psychologist who is the craziest one on the ship, or he, he's the one that is losing it, um, who would probably need more of a psychological eval than anybody else. You have the botanist who cares about her garden, and she dies alone with that last plant. Um, and I and I think that. When you look at all that, you you see Danny Boyle being very intentional with the way in which he handles these characters. So you have to look at a character like Pinbacker and go, okay, why does he exist in this movie? He could be a figment. And he could be real. There's a third theory out there that says he could be both. Because the big question is, how did he get on Icarus 2? I mean, there, I, I don't know. There's never been an, I, I can't find anything that explains it, but at I the mean, same he snuck on while the guys were 
exploring Icarus 1. He went through the airlock, in my opinion, and blew it on the other side. That's that's why the ships broke apart. That was That's how I viewed it. Yeah, and that may be it. And But why is he being perceived as a blur, not as a real person? And I think that that's... I think that's where the intent comes from, where the intent really stands out is that Danny Boyle is trying to get us to ask that question. It's less about is he real or is he not, but what effect is his character having on the rest of the crew? Because the fact is, half this movie wouldn't have even taken place had they just ignored the Icarus's. Icarus one, yeah. Yeah. Calculations would have been fine. They would have dropped the payload. Maybe it would have happened. Maybe it wouldn't have. But then we wouldn't have gotten a great second act and a good but weird third act and, and a great finish, by the way. I think I think the movie ends in a very wonderful way. I, I was very satisfied with it. And so I, I think that Pinbacker is both a real character and a symbolic character for varying reasons. And I think it can be both. And that's OK. Yeah. Because Danny Boyle can, you know, it's it's his movie. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, man. I, I mean, and I like I like the visual representation. I love the feeling I get watching this. They, it's just it takes that intensity and ratchets it up to a whole new level. And when I'm free, I'm freaking out. Like now, I'm scared. I'm I'm, I'm going into aliens mode now or alien mode, and, and it's just transitioning and it's taking me in all these different directions. And I love that this movie is all of these things at once. Um, that's what I like about it. Um, and then the visuals, especially just, we talked about it a little bit, but I don't, I can't get enough of it. I mean, there's that amazing moment where the crew gets together in the observation room to watch, um, Mercury. And it's just this like tiny dot coming Mm -hmm. across the sun. It's, it's gorgeous, man. It's so beautiful. And it, it makes me realize like, shouldn't we always be this in awe of space and the galaxy you know, I mean, it's it's hard because we're down here on Earth. We're not up there as astronauts um, seeing it firsthand, being in space and, and kind of feeling the enormity of the galaxy. But it just kind of reminds you and puts that perspective yeah. there for you. Um, also, the Earth room, you mentioned it briefly, but I kind of want to end with that uh, for the main section here. Just it, I love that concept. It's one of those sci-fi ideas that is so great. I don't remember whether it was the new Star Trek TV show or one of the Star Trek movies, I want to say. I can't remember what it was I saw, but something had this exact idea in it where there was this room that's like generated and it's like almost realistic and, you know, you can feel things and um, gosh, like this is so cool. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think? your happy place would be like, you know, Mace gets sent there and told you need to find somewhere peaceful and relaxing. So what would you have the earth room be if you were trying to be somewhere peaceful? Ooh, probably Hawaii in general. Um, or specifically, I would say (laughs) in the ocean, like underwater. Uh, I remember, as a kid, just loving to kind of have my goggles on and just sit underwater. I mean, I couldn't sit there for obviously longer than maybe a few, a few seconds, but having that kind of isolation of nothing in my ears and just there's no there's no movement, there's just quiet, and there's just the only thing that you hear, quote unquote, is the things just kind of moving around you. I love the 
quietness of that. And so if it could be a beach in Hawaii or that I would just sit on and just meditate or lying in an ocean with my head partially above water and just listening to whatever's underneath the ocean and that kind of thing. So I can't really, I'm not doing it justice, but I feel like those places relax me where I, I'm just completely cut off from the rest of the world mm-hmm. and I'm alone with my thoughts and all I have is just the isolation of being like underwater in that regard. I love it, man. And you know what? Mine actually is water as well related to that. And that's the ocean. And that is, uh, you know, for all of the bad memories I have from being in the Navy for 15 and a half years um, and for the things that I hated about going away on deployments and being stuck out at sea for months at a time without seeing land, my happy place, my peaceful place would be on the fantail of a ship sailing at night with a cool breeze in absolute pitch black darkness with no one around me, just me laying down while the ship sails around and just looking at the sky, I, there is nothing I've ever seen in my life like it. And I will probably never see anything else again like it because I will not ever be that isolated. Um, but it is an amazing experience. And for me, like that's when I felt the most at all of the enormity of space and the galaxy and the earth and everything around me. And at the same time, very personal because I, I was kind of this own little speck and alone in it. So yeah, mine would, mine would, and I love the sound of the ocean. I mean, I love the water in general. So, um, we would, we would have a similar one. I'll be out there a little further than you. Yeah. Would you, would you be saying you're the king of the world at any point? I'm not going to say whether I've done that or not, (laughs) but I have. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And with that, let's talk connecting points instead of really embarrassing moments. So I'm going to go first, Patrick, because I look here in the notes and I see that your connecting point is kind of technically probably my connecting point, but I picked something else. So um, I'm going to piggyback <laughs> a little off yours later, but I wanted to start with this. Okay. The scene that really this time around stuck out to me the most um, was Kaneda's death. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, he's the captain. So it's not often that the very first character to die is your number one, but here... We have him go out to help fix the panels, um, and Kappa has to go with him. I love the way that the scene builds up with May saying, I volunteer, Kappa. <laughs> it's kind of funny, um, but it's just immediately taken and they go. Everything makes this so impactful. Um, Kaneda immediately says he's going. There's no question about it, and that's leadership by example right there. And then... This is where we see that mistake by Trey come in. He talks about how he made these calculations. He ran them over and over and over. And he's he. you see him reeling from guilt as he starts to understand that even though it makes sense that this could happen, considering the pressure and the complexity involved in the calculations he's doing, um, it, the enormity of what he has caused to happen is critical at this point. And the whole scene is just visually incredible. We get to see Kaneda's viewpoint. And it's the second time we see this. First time is with Searle in that room, what you talked about earlier, where he's observing the sun. But here, once it's realized that Kaneda is not going to make it back, in that moment, he takes the second to turn and just 
take it all in and the way that this scene is visually with the sun flares coming over the horizon he orders kappa to get back to the airlock and then he sacrifices himself and not because he wants to just save the crew but because he is trying to save humanity it's the the mission that is important to him and then adagio and d minor this is where it's really starting to kick in you know how it comes through multiple times during the film but it's building and this this piece this freaking classical piece this track is everything to me i i love it it is impossible to me not to have my emotions affected by this piece of music and it is perfect with the way that the scene plays out with building intensity um and we hear Searle's voice and as Kaneda is essentially committing suicide and dying, we hear him screaming, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? It's just so powerful to me, both emotionally, visually, but also kind of from a spiritual standpoint, because in a way it's like he's meeting with God is the way he is embracing the sun and being taken by it. And Kaneda is okay with this and we see Searle who is wrestling with his own kind of growing worship for the sun like he wants to know he wants to be there and see in Kaneda's eyes um it's just it's, it's amazing man and I I get worked up over it every single time um and it really sets the rest of the film in motion from a sacrificial standpoint for the way that it's gonna we're gonna see it play out with the rest of the crew so um that was mine this time around yeah Kaneda's death is in that particular moment where he's just silent as he's being yelled at to say, what do you see? What do you see? To me, that's very, very meditative because you don't want to say anything in that moment. Like when you're sitting in those, when you're, when you're sitting in that, on that ship in the middle of the night and you're looking at the stars, you don't want anybody to talk. It's like the, the scene in Crimson Tide where, (laughs) where um, these two characters are talking and Denzel's, they're sitting there watching the sun go down and uh and denzel denzel's told you didn't say anything that was a good test you know you didn't you didn't waste it by talking and i think there's something there about being able to just embrace your death embrace these are the last moments i'm just i know i'm not gonna fight it and i i imagine that if i'm if i die of old age i want that to be me that i would go peacefully that i would go saying it's over it's finished my life is done i've accomplished everything that i know how to accomplish and i felt like Kaneda's death was virtuous in that moment because mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, absolutely. What was yours? Well, I really latched on to Kappa's video letter home. And I was surprised because most of the time our connecting points are typically in the third act of a film or later on. But because this movie essentially starts out in the third act, that letter home really got amplified uh, for me. And when I watched the scene, seeing how he's trying to put into words all that he's feeling... Uh, trying to explain and be positive, but also being honest about the situation. I mean, he knows that he's got a 50-50 chance of returning home, but he doesn't voice that. He knows this is probably his last chance to talk to his family, and it doesn't even sound like a, quote, last message home because I know I'm going to die. It's got hope behind it. It essentially is saying, if we've done our job, you're going to know it. And it's that message that is repeated in the last beats of the film give it that resolution that I found incredibly satisfying. It's why I think sacrifice is a fitting word um, to describe this movie for me. It's that moment that I felt pretty confident that Kappa wasn't going to survive, wasn't going to survive. 
and I knew that I was going to be okay with that. So I latched on to him as a character. I was thinking, okay, how is this going to play out? Because when you show me a video letter like that of a guy struggling and eventually saying what he says in that message, the surprise is not that he dies. The surprise is the way in which he does it. And the way his life ended doing what he did was incredibly moving for me emotionally. And I think without that video letter, it would have felt like a dramatic death, but it would have felt equal to every other death, which was not bad, but wasn't nearly as impactful. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And and it really is overall for the majority of my viewings, that's been the most impactful moment for me too. And I think what seals it, to be honest, is that we come back to it at the end. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the, when he's sending the letter, it's pretty powerful. And it reminds me of, you know, the similar scene in Interstellar where yeah. he's trying to talk to Murph. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very kind of similarity to that. But then it's, it's that voiceover at the end when we're on Earth mm-hmm. and we're seeing what we assume to be like his family um, and the little spark, you know, of the brighter day and like realizing like that that's what's happened. Um, and you realize like, gosh, this thing, this is what it takes. This is what it would take for humanity to save itself. It's going to require people like this. And the fact that he too gets to go out kind of like Kaneda virtuously, um, kind of exploring what it's like in his trade as a physicist to be in the midst of a physicist of a nuclear explosion, um, because time slows down, apparently. It's really, it's gorgeous. That's what it is. Um, I just, I love how it plays out. And, and I think it's, it's fair and it makes him, this is Cillian Murphy's movie to me. And it's his best performance to me. I just, I think he's phenomenal in this film. So yeah, I mean, good, good choice. Good choice. Well, listeners, if you would like to interact with me, you can find me on social media. You can do that on Twitter. I'm at feeling film. And yeah, we are looking forward to next week, Patrick. Uh, I've got that by request episode coming on Frozen some point in the next couple days. So keep an eye on the feed for that, the by request podcast. Make sure you subscribe to that one uh, so you don't miss out on it. And yeah, just uh, keep looking at our social media feeds for our reviews that come out each week as well. I am seeing A Star is Born this week, so I will have thoughts. You better bet. Leave it. Just a couple probably, right? Just a couple. Just a couple. (laughs) What about you? Well, if you want to find me, I'm usually hanging out on Facebook and Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-C. Excuse me. Wow. Let's try that again. I've done this enough times. I should be able to do this without messing up. S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. There we go. I've spelled it. I win the spelling bee. And you can usually find me in the Facebook group. I typically post the Wednesday poll questions. If you at me, I'll join the conversation as long as I know that you want to have me a part of the conversation. There's a lot going on in the Facebook group, which is a very good thing. It can be kind of a lot if you're new to the group, but I guarantee you one of us as admins or any other member of the group will be happy to engage in conversation with you. It's a very, very cool community, one that uh, has a lot to say about upcoming movies, past movies, and anything related to the, to the film community. Next week, we're finishing up Sci-Fi September, and we are covering Disney Pixar's WALL-E. So you know there's going to be some emotional punch there, especially with Pixar being in the mix. So be sure to check us out next week for that as we finish off Sci-Fi September. <laughs>
All right, man. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. I haven't seen that in a long time, and I am excited to rewatch it. But until then, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, please stay positive and keep feeling film. Thank you.